Releasing their debut self-titled album in 2002, The Used, a four-piece rock band from Orem, Utah, were a part of the proliferation of emo music in the mainstream, having signed to major label reprise records less than a year after forming. With impressive instrumentation, emotive vocals and dark lyrical themes, their debut full-length has been described by Sputnik Music as the type of first record every band would want to make, and something that gives a new meaning to the term beginner's luck, adding that this album can't be placed in a specific genre. In different quantities it contains punk, pop-punk, hardcore, post-hardcore, and a bit of screamo. While vocalist Burt McCracken and bass player Jeff Howard remain at the core of the band today, the earliest period of the used career also featured guitarist Quinn Allman and drummer Brandon Steinekett, the lineup responsible for their debut and their 2004 follow-up, In Love and Death. In Love and Death's lyrical concepts revolve strongly around the tragic loss of McCracken's partner who died while pregnant with their child earlier that year. The album would sell over 1 million copies and still remains their most successful release to date. Billboard said that the record straddles the line between street credibility and mainstream success. I'm Paul, alongside me is Nick, and today on Violence and Sunshine, we're exploring the used. We never shy away from the difficult questions on this podcast. We're never afraid to dive right in. And as I've been doing <laughs> my research this week, I've watched so many live clips, and Bert McCracken, the lead vocalist, loves wearing shorts on stage. So I have to ask you, in all seriousness, is it ever okay to wear shorts on stage? <laughs> It's a, it's a great question uh, because I noticed the same thing. I, I knew it then but didn't think too much about it. But re-watching now all these film clips and live shows from The Used, he's never not wearing some form of shorts, often like a three-quarter length cargo pants short type thing. Um, but I would say context is the big one here. I think drummers, so instrument drummers, fine. Especially like a hard rock metal drummer, very common to be wearing shorts. I think if the show or 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 uh, or gig is indoors, <laughs> then pants are a must. Bit of a formal occasion, indoor <laughs> indoor indoor activity. Pop some pants on. Outdoor festival shorts okay, especially like a summer festival. And I think like just noticing more bands in more recent times. I think especially in that kind of like indie scene, that kind of like rise of the shorts has come back a bit. You know, little bucket hat, little Hawaiian shirt, some shorts especially at an outdoor festival. So I think context is a big one. I'm not sure if you agree with this. Should, are shorts a no-go ever or are there times when it's okay? I remember one of our shows way back in the day, my mum had to talk me out of wearing footy shorts on stage. So I think <laughs> you just you just need someone sensible to have a word to you and go, is this the most appropriate use of your legs? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's funny, in the, in the Maybe Memories DVD, he's wearing pants and you mentioned the formal occasion and I wonder if they were just like, man, we're filming this DVD, you wear shorts <laughs> all the time, you have to wear some trousers tonight. <laughs> and, some, yeah. they, can be, they can be baggy, they can still be angsty. You know, you can have a studded belt here or there, but uh, the shorts, you know, maybe leave those in the closet for the for the DVD. I think it might have been Reese, your brother-in-law, our mutual friend, who hated the used because of the shorts wearing. It was a wall preventing him from actually listening to the used. He's like, I can't do it. That guy wears shorts on stage. It obviously is a is a divisive subject, and I'm glad we've started on the top with this. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty 
pretty polarizing. There you go. If that's enough to stop someone from wanting to listen to and get into a band, then maybe that's the answer then. Maybe the answer is a flat no. <laughs> Even when I listen to the record, I'm like, I think this guy is wearing shorts as he records his records. <laughs> so I'm oh, self-titled. Oh, hitting question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we start with the hard stuff. Oh, yeah. So self-titled came out in 2002. This was super important. It, it laid the groundwork for so many other bands, and it was also a perfect representation of a theme we continue to explore in this show, and that is young people making authentic music and record labels jumping on that. These guys had that kind of Panic at the Disco-esque, almost not really playing shows before being signed, not having a complete uh, back catalogue of music, but they were given that advice, kind of don't go around trying to do shows, work on your music, work on your songs. Some of their songs that came on this record, you listen to the demos and it's almost the same thing. You know, it's like just a raw version. So you know that they didn't have that kind of intervention and they've spoken about that. They got a record deal based on a few songs and they had no record label intervention. They had final say on artwork, on song structure, on producers, everything. And these dudes are pretty young. I think they range between kind of 18 to 21, 22. And I think that's really impressive. Good on the record label for giving them that trust. And this record is proof of that trust. It's a really uh, unique record. It's obviously got some influences of bands that came before them. But I thought I wasn't going to enjoy listening to this one. I thought it was going to be firmly stuck back in the early 2000s. It's almost 20 years old now. But I finally got over the hump. I listened to it and I really enjoyed it. It's a great, complete record. What was your experience this week listening to it? I, just on a memory kind of bank triggering into and thinking back to then, I always thought it was the the second album in Love and Death that was the more popular. And I just kind of couldn't piece, oh, which one was it? Was the first album kind of just a bit scratchy and dodgy and it was okay. And then it was the second album that was the good one. And it's so clearly not. It's self-titled is the standout album from from that band and for me i think the reason why i liked it so much was it really as you as you said it had some influences from bands that we had already been exposed to so for me two big ones i kind of picked up i'm not sure if people would agree piecing these two together but probably more you know Glassjaw and incubus i was really picking up vibes from both of those bands even a little bit of refused uh in especially the guitar tone has more of a refused sound to it so to hear that first self-titled album and having some of those influences of bands that I was already really into were made that album, you know, really special. It was just kind of like a slightly angstier, um, punkier version of some of that other more rockier stuff, I guess. Um, and they were cool. Like I, I vividly remember um, Quinn Ullman, the guitarist, easily uh, my first man crush <laughs> just looked at Quinn and went, yeah, that that's the sort of guy, if I'm ever in a band, that's who I want to be. He's probably really one of the reasons why I wanted to get an electric guitar and learn and play, you know, rockier, punkier stuff because he just seemed so cool and watching him in, you know, that, that a box full of sharp objects um, film clip is really one of those classic live footage mixed with tour footage um, clips that we've talked a lot about before on, on the pod. They did it really well. Just a bunch of mates having a ball of fun, um, touring, hanging out in the studio, being silly, 
and the music being you know cool to go along with that was enough for me to like i was i was really into the used for that kind of two year three year period there you know we spoke about before the used sweat band did not leave my wrist for a good two years i think so yeah huge influential band for me for sure would you consider quinn allman the nash of the band it's interesting that you say that because kind of yes, like like they're only a four piece band. We've spoke more Bobby about bands that more drifted into that stereotypical five piece setup, but the used didn't go down that track. They more that pop punk classic setup of a four piece band, and uh, you know when you think of it, like the drummer in the used is is really good. Bert McCracken is a charismatic cool front man and who ever really listens to bass but so so quinn so <laughs> as quinn, a bass yeah, player he, i he, understand he, that <laughs> so quinn is the nash of the band he holds it together he writes some really cool underrated riffs especially on that album and uh and he and he does backing vocals and you watch like if you watch the live clip on uh, letterman i think it was um he especially towards the end of the song he does backing vocals and he holds them up well and he actually sings more in key than, than Bert <laughs> yeah. does. So, yeah, I think... But it, but also you got to have that classic Nash of the Band element where you're a little bit mousy and, and just a little bit shy and, uh, you know, you, you the people that are more, I don't know, egotistical and, and arrogant, they can sit up the front and flaunt themselves and you just you just creep to the back of the stage a little more and, and let your, let your, uh, your skill set do all the work. <laughs> yeah, let, let the music and let your skills speak for themselves. I think that's a, a good summation. And I think uh, Quinn Allman is this month's Nash of the band. <laughs> he certainly is. <laughs> you mentioned that music video that's the classic compilation of just fucking around on the bus and touring and things like that. It turns out that was completely tongue-in-cheek. Like, they were taking the piss from all those videos, but who would have known it? Like, it, it served both purposes. It was like having a stab at those videos, but also was one of those videos. So whether you were kind of like looking for the irony or not, it served them really well. And I think that was smart. Like watching back at that music video, I feel just as good about it today as I did back then. Like I don't look at them and go, oh, it's a bit cringy. It's, it's dated. I'm like, yeah, that's that time. That was a lot of fun for us. Clearly for them, it was, um, yeah, good feelings are attached to it. Yeah, if they were recreating that to take the piss, gee, they did a bloody good job of it. Yeah. I was completely unaware of that. And there's just some standout bits in that film clip. He, you know, Bert's having like a slapping contest with a mate in the studio, and they're slapping each other on the face. Completely silly shit. But as teenage boys, we love that sort of stuff. You know, we're very into jackass and and that kind of thing. And then that I, I can't believe they left it in on the clip, but. Bert throwing up on stage right when one of the scream bits hits. I remember, you know, I'm pretty sure the use came to Australia for Taste of Chaos. And that was, I think that's really the only time I may have seen them live, to be honest. They, they might be, I think that might have been it. Yeah, you got on that Taste of Chaos bus yeah, yeah. from Bendigo and, and yeah. went and saw the used. How was that? It was, that was, that was a really cool outing, actually. So I, uh, I'd been to gigs before and had travelled to Melbourne to watch bands before, but a lot of our school buddies hadn't. And we didn't have licences there. We were younger. So there was this real like, oh, people want to go to Taste of Chaos, but how the hell are we ever going to organise everyone's parents to be on board? Somehow I was able to organise a bus and convinced, I don't know which parent would have signed the, the lease or whatever. Maybe even one parent came and sat on the bus while we went into the gig but yeah bus from bendigo to melbourne um dropped us off at rod laver we all went to taste of chaos and the bus driver just sat in the car park for the entire gig and then we all went back to the bus and they drove us home and and the used played that and i remember having this feeling having already seen that film clip 
I just, I don't, it's so gross to think of now, but I was just like, geez, I wonder if Bert's going to throw up on stage. Oh, <laughs> oh geez, I really I hope, hope he, he spews. Oh, I hope he fucking does it, man. <laughs> and now thinking of that, why on earth would I want to see that? But uh, I know maybe that, that, that film clip really kind of resonated to that point where I was just like, I want to, I just want to see that film clip in real life was basically what I was uh, was itching for. <laughs> they have a pretty interesting origin story. They're from Utah, which is a traditionally like very Mormon conservative state. And when you kind of read about the band, they talk about it. They are possibly one of the first like successful rock acts out of Utah. Um, prior to them was the Osmonds, who were a super conservative, like good time family band. So they had a really unique experience in the sense they didn't have that scene or culture like you look at the new jersey scene or the new york scene they didn't have that so it was just a pretty authentic organic collection of dudes um not with a bunch of peers to bounce off so to come out with this as a first record is just is putting a lot of cards on the table showing just how skilled these guys really really were it was great to listen back and go this is a a full record this is a complete record from start to finish there's really enjoyable parts i found the kind of spotify listens really interesting i think there's songs that i thought were amazing like maybe memories is the opening track on the record you mentioned the refused influence which listening back i'm like oh god these guys are just stolen from refused (laughs) but you do a bit of digging and they did that on purpose they heard new noise and that was an inspiration so they wanted that tone they wanted that kind of like teasing people a little bit and a big scream comes in on later records you can hear even some of that like drum programming stuff that refused did so they weren't like stealing ideas they were just taking from the influences there's even songs like bulimic and greener with the scenery that even have like a, an almost taking back sunday influence so as these guys were kind of stuck in utah they were obviously still listening to what was around but taking those influences and making their own thing so what the result was was a really complete really impressive debut self-titled album there's just so many great songs on there maybe memories would probably be my favorite do you have a favorite on there it's it's probably got to be a box full of sharp objects just for nostalgic purposes of i'm pretty sure it's the first song i ever heard as we discussed love the love the film clip and it's they do this amazing thing on that album that i think a lot of screamo bands try to replicate and generally fall short on which is really really great use of light and shade and, and that's that, you know, they've got acoustic songs on this album that don't feel out of place and just generic for the sake of putting an acoustic song on an album. You know, they strip everything right back and have Bert sing clean, even though he's not the greatest singer, and then have everything crash in really loud with brutal screaming. I, I remember, you know, watching the Maybe Memories DVD and Bert's, what he would go through, you know, we, we you hear about it a bit, bands doing this sort of stuff, but, like, he would get on his, you know, knees hunched over, just screaming into the microphone while his fellow bandmates would hit him with objects from around the studio. They literally would chuck shit at him and kind of, like, mock him and shame him to be like, you know, that's not good enough. Go harder, go harder, go harder. Like, so just these kids that, as you said, they were given complete full reign to do whatever they wanted in the studio, which is, like, that... The, the kind of balls and guts, I guess, of the record label to give them that too. Like, you know, taking on a band that, as you said, hadn't really played a lot of shows yet, didn't have a huge following, but, you know, um, John Feldman, or I think that's his name, John Feldman from Goldfinger, was was very impressed with these, these young dudes. The used were a fan of Goldfinger, so that's how I think the kind of interaction came about. But he was just impressed with their work ethic, 
um, that they were willing to push the boundaries a bit. And ultimately, the used early on, straight after that album, they saw themselves as, as a rock band. They wanted to be a rock and roll band. Now, they probably didn't realise that they were slipping more into that emo, screamo genre. Um, as you said, they were maybe a little bit, um, you know, in kind of a closed area uh, in Utah, not as uh, exposed to the, the wider music scene as, as some bands, say, coming out of New York or coming out of LA. But, you know, they really just thought that they were a rock and roll band. And that album as a whole it is pretty much just a really cool rock album. And yeah, for me, it's the it's the light and shade. It's it's the the highs and lows throughout. It's it's Bert pushing his vocals as hard as he can to obviously to the point where he throws up on stage. But it is a standout first album, and as you put it, it's the album that I think a lot of bands would hope they could release as as their first one. I think they really struggled to emulate that it's that classic issue where you've got your whole life to write your first record and then six months to write your second because straight after self-title was released they toured for two years apparently they had 10 days at home like that was the longest period they had at home in two years so they hit the road apparently the record came out and the record label sent them a box of records and they're like sweet we've got an album but every time they'd go to a new city and they'd go into a store and look for their record it wasn't there it wasn't even on the system so these guys are famous because of their hustle and their work ethic or that you know successful because of their hustle and their work ethic and i think that was a real perfect storm on this record it was authentic they worked hard they were friends they were young they were enthusiastic and i don't know if that can be then replicated like that's a really amazing recipe for a first record how do you then follow that up and do that again or have a sound mm. that's interesting or keep people interested when what kind of got you signed in the first place you can't do anymore you can't be that real kid from utah anymore you're a major label act touring the world so it's yeah. really interesting to see the kind of the shift in in sound in love and death sold a million records that was their it's mm. their most successful record to date but i think self-titled is the the magnum opus as far as i'm concerned yeah, I, I agree, and uh, I don't think we're the only ones. So let's hear from the, the man himself now and see what he had to say about the youth this week. Now, I'm actually not much of a debatesman, but I would fight to the death to say that if the used never released another album after self-titled, they would have been one of the greatest bands of our generation. Big call. Call the cops. It's huge. I probably already regret saying it. But go in a room, put it on, listen to that drum roll at the start of that album, self-titled, and get ready to say, Dear Ashley, you the man. It's so good. It's grungy. I'll bloody say it. It's mature. The songs, the album cover, the music videos, they could have been our Nirvana. But like my early 90s skate belt, they went on way too long. the master of analogy and that's not even shinfo this week that is just absolutely spot on so i kind of agree if that album just sat on its own you know we talked about acceptance uh, as a band earlier in kind of having just one album really you know they, they then rejoined and released some more stuff but ultimately had one album that that they created all their popularity from and uh and basically all their fan base was from one album it would have been very interesting to see how 
the used would have held up over time if they just dropped that one album and then just disappeared into oblivion they would have never come to australia so we would have never seen them live um they they wouldn't have necessarily released you know a, a dvd it's it's a very interesting thought to think what would have happened there because in love and death generally is not a great album they they far more went down the poppier mainstream kind of vibe whereas i think we were all hoping for more grit and grunge which just isn't isn't on that album really at all so i think i agree i've got to agree with grevlo nirvana's a big stretch but you know who knows who knows we we can't say for sure but uh they definitely would have been incredibly uh yeah would have been a pretty profound band to just drop that album and then fuck off I was really alienated by In Love and Death. I found uh, All That I've Got to be a really kind of average single. It, it made sense in a mainstream um, capacity and it obviously was their highest selling record, but then they struggled to emulate that success. So I really feel that In Love and Death benefited from the goodwill of self-titled. People automatically bought In Love and Death. Like I didn't own self-titled. I couldn't get it. So I had a burnt copy, but then I bought In Love and Death. And it's not my favorite. So I think plenty of people kind of probably bought In Love and Death as a bit of a thank you for the illegal download of the first <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Self-titled had something for everyone. So if you want a soft pop song, there's Taste of Ink, there's On My Own. If you want something heavy, there's maybe Memories. If you want something in between, there's a box full of sharp objects. In Love and Death seemed to be just trying to emulate things again. Like they had the song Take It Away, which felt like a forced version of their their angst. It had all that I've got, which just didn't feel as raw as some of the earlier stuff did. So we don't want to dwell too much on the fact that we lost interest in this band. That's not their fault that we dropped off. But I think there's some pretty good reasons why we and others did. I was even reading that to record the second album or to write the songs for the second album, they went back to Utah to Brandon's basement, the drummer, to, you know, try and kind of like relive the glory days of when they were recording in cupboards with a microphone hung over the, the clothes rack. And, you know, when they were recording demos and then taking Bert to Narcotics Anonymous meetings, like when it was just raw. So already they were starting to have to copy something they were no longer capable of. And I think it's telling in the ultimate output and then what has come from the band since you know Quinn Allman was eventually ousted from the band by this point they're just an original singer and bass player and I think that has drastically affected the skill set of the band it, it takes out that authentic element doesn't it like if, if those things they actually lived through as you said Bert was unfortunately struggling with substance abuse they were you know kids with no money that just so happened to have a guy take them under their wings and give them an opportunity to record um, but it wasn't in a super fancy, you know, schmixed studio. You know, they were in kitchens, they were in cupboards, they were doing, you know, whatever it took. So to then try and replicate that, like I understand why they would feel like had to give that a go, but all the uh, all, all that authentic um, sound that came through on self-titled by that just, that was who they were and what they were living through. You can't then try and emulate that and expect the same outcome. Like art generally does come from, especially in this scene, does come from, uh, you know, a, a place of loss, a place of sorrow, hardship, all those things can, can bring out the best art. So if you're not really going through those things at the time, which is much better for your, your mental health and your well-being, but unfortunately the end product, uh, 
yeah, I think took a massive hit and and is just not all not all that great for a follow-up album. They replaced Quinn Allman with Justin Shikoski from Sayerson. And so that was like a pretty interesting upgrade if you want to look at it that way. Like I'm a huge fan of Sayerson. Justin's an incredible guitarist and songwriter. But within a couple of years, it was really strange. The band had a restraining order against him. He wasn't allowed near them. Apparently he'd threatened violence against the band, violence against himself. I've just started to see in hindsight this looks like a pretty strange band. It looks like a pretty toxic environment. By all accounts, from particularly from Brandon and Quinn, um, Bert was a really avoidant person, not someone who could have difficult conversations and someone who would take the option of what's easiest for me. Like, as long as I'm fine, you guys go do whatever you want. And there's been divisions in this band for a long time, and it starts to reek of that senses fail nostalgia act you know, the used karaoke, basically. Bert and Jeff have been in the used the whole time. They've got a couple of other guys. I've even had to rotate through a couple of guitarists. And by now, it feels like most people are surely going to see the used for the classics. Like, they were in Melbourne a couple of years ago doing uh, the albums in full, like on alternating nights. So you could go to self-titled one night, In Love and Death the other. And I know people that went to both nights or one or the other having loved them. I'm not sure how many people are still kind of tuning in for the for the newer works even it seems like they they know where their popularity lies like you know to do a tour like that where they're coming out just to play an album you know we've 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 seen bands do this before you know you and i've both been to an under oath gig where we saw them only play define the great line and you're only chasing safety we also experienced a weird thing last year in covid lockdown where you were living in another country and we both logged in to watch a live stream of under oath um, play only de- only define the great line. I think I can't yeah. quite remember off yeah. the top of my head, but I think it was only that album. And and there's been other other bands that have done the same thing. Amblin have come to Australia. I think you saw Block Party. Yeah, Block Party did Silent Alarm in full. And what I really loved about it was they played it backwards because it's it's top heavy that record in terms of singles. So to start from the bottom of it, it really built the suspense. I've seen other bands do it and they do it in sequence. They do it in order. I think we've seen Thursday do it. I've seen We Came As Romans do it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. Like, I, I, I don't really care. I would much prefer to have a band like The Used put all their time and effort into touring the world, you know, continually playing those songs that were so, such a, like, influential part of the scene some 20-odd years ago rather than listen to what the hell they're going to put together and release this year. I, I would never even click on a song if The Used released a new album this year. Um, but uh, not necessarily with The Used that I would go and pay money to that show, but I would at least be intrigued. And as you said, we'd have, we had buddies that went to the one when they were here only a couple of years ago. So it's an interesting concept. I think it generally works well for that band to keep them relevant. And I think we're going to see a lot, lot more of it in years to come. I think so. I think so. I think the challenge for me, much like Senses Fail, is I love those tours, even if the band isn't doing new stuff, but the lineup does matter to me. So it's really, it is a little uncomfortable watching like a 10 or 20 year reunion of something when the guys who wrote it aren't there or the people that wrote it aren't there. I think that's my, my roadblock for that. I enjoy it. I love the nostalgia trip. But if it's not the core of the band, yeah, there can be some changes. That's normal. Some some of these bands are just a workplace. But yeah. in the used case, Brandon Steinick at the drummer, Quinn Allman, the guitarist, those guys are the architects of the of the used and to me the heart and soul of the musicianship in that band. So 
Burt McCracken was the guy that everyone loved and he's front and center. He's a charismatic front man. He's our generation's Kurt Cobain. <laughs> but to me, as a fan of music, as a fan of instrumentation, which I think self-titled really displays well, they they lost something big with those guys. Yeah, I think it speaks volume to why we probably really enjoyed and were happy to pay money to to see Under Oath do it because they've ultimately kept the same lineup and and you you want to see Aaron Gillespie on drums, you want to see Spencer singing, you know these these guys are still a big part. You want to see the weird keyboardist guy, I don't know his name, <laughs> but he was he was fucking there doing his thing. So um, yeah, you're right. I think there really needs to be two parts of these reunion type album tours. Get get the album right, pick the right album that people want to hear, but then ultimately do whatever you can to try and get the majority of that lineup together because that uh, will ultimately make it a better experience for all your fans. Right on. So uh, how are you feeling? You ready for, uh, ready for a game? You feeling good? I'm feeling good, man. Let's do it. People of all ages, this is The Quiz. There'll be questions. There'll be answers. There are no prizes, but this is the quiz. We are here. We have arrived at the game. So this week was a little bit different for us. Usually one of us will just take the lead, go off and come up with the quiz. But you said to me during the week, you're like, mate, I've got a really good name for the quiz, (laughs) but I haven't necessarily got a game out of it. So you can introduce the name of the quiz and then I'll run the quiz. So so what have we got? Oh, you know, I love a good pun. So this week's game in honor of Bert McCracken, the lead vocalist, the game is called Bert's of a Feather. So that was the best I could do. I'm like, yep, I've got a genius name and I've got no idea. So tell us about this week's game, Nick. (laughs) So I took your genius pun and also kept it quite simple and said, well, let's do Bert related uh, questions. So Bert's of a Feather flock together. Let's go for it. So question one is simple question. Uh, who is the tallest out of these Burt's? So the four Burt's to choose from are Burt Reynolds, Burt Newton, Burt from Burt and Ernie fame, or Burt McCracken. Ooh, all right. So I'm going to eliminate uh, Burt from Burt and Ernie fame being a, a short puppet, I'm sure. Burt Reynolds strikes me as one of those guys like Tom Cruise who like is super cool in movies, but is probably like actually four foot eight and needs to be on a box. <laughs> I'm oh. don't tell Burt Reynolds that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, actually, no. I think he's I think he's R.I.P. now. So oh, R.I.P. Burt Reynolds. I am gonna go with Burt McCracken, the the man of the hour himself. Is he the tallest out of those Burts? He is not the tallest Ooh. out of those Burts. Despite losing a limb recently, Burt Newton is the tallest Burt. Amazing. So, I didn't even acknowledge yeah. Burt Newton. Oh, shout big, out to Burt Patty. Yeah, big ball Burt Newton. Um, you know, unless he was to lean on his, his amputee side oh. <laughs> and drop a few centimetres. <laughs> but if he stands You're up tall and he's good those leg, jokes. Yeah, yeah, I'll make those jokes <laughs> as a fellow amputee, for those that don't know. <laughs> we, we will clarify. But no, um, yeah, Burt Newton is uh, 183, Burt Reynolds 180, so pretty close. It's like your six-foot sort of mark. Uh, Burt, Crack- Burt McCracken's only 170. Uh, and Bert, I actually, Bert from Bert and Ernie Fam didn't know. I guess he was 60 centimetres tall. So. <laughs> I had no idea though. That just shows how no one should ever listen to me. Did you hear the confidence in which I walked through that? Like, oh yeah, Bert Reynolds would definitely be a short guy. Yeah. yeah the lesson guy. here is never, ever listen to me about anything. <laughs> well, maybe just not about celebrities' height. Uh, we'll listen to you about other things. All right, moving on. 
So the brand Burt's Bees, I'm not sure if you've heard about them, but the brand Burt's Bees produce what product? Is it honey, insecticide, skincare beauty products, or clothing? Uh, I reckon it's skincare beauty products. Having lived in North America, I feel like they were on like lip balms on the counter of like every CVS pharmacy and every shopper's drug mart. So uh, yeah, health and beauty products. You've nailed it. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Yeah, very popular lip balm. And I think they make a few other things. But uh, yep, skincare beauty. So you're one from two. I'm on the board. Uh, you're on the board. Okay, true or false question now. Uh, true or false, the Bertie Beetle chocolate bar was originally created to use leftover honeycomb from the production of Violet Crumble chocolate bars. So is that how the Bertie Beetle chocolate bar came to be? True or false? Based on absolutely no knowledge other than constantly buying the Birdie Beetle show bag prior to the formula adjustment when they appeased all the vegetarians and got rid of the gelatin, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm not traumatized by that at all. I'm not still thinking about that. <laughs> I'm going to go true. I'm going to go that is why they created the Birdie Beetle to use leftover what violet crumble honeycomb. My answer yeah, is true. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. He's got it, folks. That's two from three. Yeah, I've quite an interesting little fact there. So... Obviously had a bunch of leftover honeycomb. Didn't know what to do to do with it. Came up with the uh, the birdie beetle chocolate bar. And you and you mentioned something else. Really, for, I would say for most kids from the the nineties, uh, that's our only introduction of birdie beetle chocolate bars was in show bag form. Yeah, like that's yeah. you bought the two dollar birdie beetle show bag. I don't remember seeing them in shops. No, there. I I actually you know to do a little bit of research to get that question. There was a period from in the seventies roughly onwards there was about a 20 or 30 year period where they basically didn't put them in shops they were only available in show bags so it's not surprising that that's our memory of it they then kind of went back into supermarkets for a bit and tried to rebrand them here or there but ultimately it's a show bag chocolate bar right um, on but All no right. You, so so you've got it that's two from three and uh, that's about where it stops for our general knowledge Bert questions. <laughs> Not a super popular name, so we'll move on. We'll move on. I've now got three uh, Bert McCracken-related questions. Great. So question one is, well, question four in the quiz, but question one on Bert McCracken is, what was the name of Bert McCracken's first band? There's a bonus point up for grabs at the end, but firstly, the options are I'm with Stupid, Dumb Luck, Handjobs for Jesus, or My Chemical Bromance. <laughs> oh, man. There's, um, yeah, there is a My Chemical Bromance between Jared Way and the used at some point. It's uh, the subject of much really weird fan fiction, uh, their, their relationship, which was event is which was pretty quickly non-existent. It was bad mm, blood. I thought you'd like that one. Yeah, that like was that really one. good. Um, I'm going to go Handjobs for Jesus. So he, he looks like a Handjobs for Jesus kind of guy. Interesting. So yeah, although he was brought up a Mormon, um, he retaliated against that pretty hard and his parents' beliefs. Um, Handjobs for Jesus is a song that he guest appeared on. Oh. It's a gold, it's a Goldfinger song. Uh, Dumb Luck is the name of Quinn's band before Bert joined it and then it became the used. And the actual answer is I'm with Stupid. Wow. And in that high school band, he played an instrument. And I'll give you a bonus point if you can guess what instrument. Drummer. Oh, he goes on record to saying he was a bass player before a singer, but in that band he actually played trumpet. Oh, random! <laughs> so that, yeah. there's some kind of so shitty he, scar connection there. 
Yeah, yeah. I think he was just part of this school band. I don't. It wasn't really his band as such, but it was according to Wiki, which is the source of all knowledge. Um, Never wrong. He played trumpet. Yeah, he played trumpet in a band called I'm with Stupid. Man, I hate ska music. I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> there is nothing good about ska music. I'll die oh, on yeah. that hill. All right. Anyway, you, you, you're batting at fifty percent at the moment. You got two from four. So, uh, okay, where currently? Does uh, Bert McCracken reside? Does he live in Sydney, Australia? Does he live in Los Angeles, USA? Las Vegas, USA? Or Paris, France? I've been doing my research. Since 2013, Bert McCracken has lived in Sydney, Australia with his Australian wife. He moved here to escape the, like, growing Americanization and capital, like capitalism and corporatization of America. Can't imagine that's going too well for him with the current state of Australia. I think we're America <laughs> light these days, well on our way to yeah, our own yeah. storm of the capital. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he lives in Sydney, Australia. And like a lot of, some of these bands that we cover have a real affinity for this country. So Sydney, Australia, please. You couldn't be more correct. And yeah, uh, yeah I think that's, uh, that was a cool little nugget of information I wasn't aware of until... I looked them up a bit more this week, but uh, that's that's three from five, and you're well on your way. In the, unless you get this one wrong, I'm giving you a pass, because I think if you've done your research on where he lives, I think you'll feel confident in knowing this question. Ooh. But in 2002, but briefly dated which celebrity? Callie Osborne. Was it? <laughs> oh, there we go. Dang. I'm not even taking those options. <laughs> this is Time is money. <laughs> Yeah, it is Kelly Osborne. We don't even need to hear the other options. <laughs> but that is a that is a good quiz for you, my friend. That's four from six. And other than the weird potential scar band that he was in, <laughs> you I say will know you do know your Burt McCracken. Thank you very much. That was a that was a really good game. The Osborne's thing was really interesting. Like I remember I used to watch the Osborne's and I remember him popping up on the show and it was really strange. And they were doing this really bogus kind of like Sharon not approving of him. He's too much like Ozzy. He's a, you know, he's a drug addict. I'm like, yeah. this sucks. Apparently the band didn't want to be, want him to be on it. He didn't approve his appearance and the band were really frustrated by it because it kind of painted them. It, it very much made Burt McCracken a caricature of that, like, you know, drug addled lead singer, which I mean, he was, but we shouldn't be looking at that as like a caricature. That's someone who needs help and love and support. And if you, Sharon Osborne, have been, by the side of a man who is the like living representation of drug addiction um, and rock and roll, like maybe you understand why yeah. your daughter's going down that route. Yeah, a little bit, little bit hypocritical to be so you know concerned about this particular boyfriend as opposed to you know welcoming him into the family and giving him some extra support and understanding. But yeah, it was sort of a whole weird thing. Hey, like he popped up in in an episode in that season of of the Osbournes, and I think the way it ended. It all it all ended very poorly for their relationship, and I'm pretty sure what I read was that he he broke up with her on on uh, Valentine's Day via a voice message or something like that. So maybe that was a little fuck you back to the Osbournes for treating him poorly, or or maybe there was more to it. I honestly don't know. But, it does um, seem like I mentioned it before. It seemed like he's an incredibly avoidant dude, and it's while that was a bad situation, like their relationship was good enough for she was on a the used song, like they did a collaboration at some point, which again was odd but yeah I, I don't know if uh Bert McCracken is the like boyfriend material that a lot of the people we were hanging out with at the time yeah. thought he was well it's interesting to throw it back to to Shimfo this week where you know he talks about potentially being the Nirvana of the of, of our generation potentially Bert being that Kurt Cobain you know 
Kurt dating Courtney Love and having that celebrity connection between those two, but went with uh, Kelly Osborne, who well, I'm not sure she's, she's quite Courtney Love <laughs> material as a musician, but uh, as a person, maybe, who knows? Lovely but, yeah, woman interesting, by all accounts. <laughs> yeah. For real. Interesting, yeah. Uh, interesting similarities there that they had that little kind of, um, that little celebrity love affair that, that didn't end overly well for either of them yeah but uh, we won't go into conspiracy theories about Cobain's death here though that's not what this oh, pod's God. about <laughs> well while Burt McCracken kind of followed the Kurt Cobain template for you know his early career and his musical output initially and his relationships the use didn't quite follow the template we've covered in most of our other episodes that typical five-piece band the use were a four-piece band I do believe they had a touring guitarist very briefly but ultimately everything you watch is is four dudes playing together one guitar one bass one drums and a singer so mm. i want to introduce a new segment this week let's do it build a band yeah can we build it build a band yeah yes we can screamo or emo and metal too i know some band dudes how about you we're building a band just for fun <laughs> Nicky and Paul will get the job done. Build a band, yeah. Can we build it? Build a band, yeah. Yes, we can. <laughs> oh my god. That, uh, I'll let the listeners know. I had not heard that <laughs> until this week. That is your finest work by far. Let's call it quits here. <laughs> yeah, that's we'll the stop end of the, the episode. episode there. End I don't even need, need to hear who your band is. <laughs> this, that was that was amazing. Loved loved every bit of that. Did you also refer to me as Nikki? I that? did. Yeah, I needed Paul the syllables. Yeah, Nikki. You know? <laughs> oh, amazing. Loved it. Loved it and loved the segment. Um, all right. I reckon how we go about. I'm not sure about you, but I reckon we go. You know, like member by member, instrument by. So you mention your drummer, I mention mine. You mention your band. I mean, I reckon we kind of go like that, as opposed as opposed to me hearing your whole band, then you hearing mine. How do you feel about that? That sounds good. So I'll quickly explain to the listener what the rule is. So to a segment where we're going to basically construct a dream band in the same genre of our band of the week. So as we're talking about the use, we're going to construct like a you know pure emo screamo band with four members. And so there's a couple of rules. So like in the used, the lead singer has to be a more of a singer than a screamer. So they they do both. More clean. Primarily yep. a clean singer. And either the bass player or the guitarist needs to do backing vocals. So you need to have those kind of Nash of the band secret weapons in there to to carry the charismatic frontman. So like you said, we might alternate between instruments. How about you kick it off? Shall we start with drummer? We can start with drama. I was going to say let's start with the least important, which is bass, but we'll go drama. <laughs> I feel <laughs> yeah, I love attacked. picking on bass in this in this pod. <laughs> I'm such an asshole. All right, drama. Okay, drama for me. Uh, I did a little bit of just kind of listening back through my favorite kind of bands in in the scene, and the standout clearly became for me was Tucker Rule from Thursday. So not only an absolutely amazing name, but a rock solid amazing drummer so Tucker rule lock it in he is my drummer for this band fantastic and yeah i think you hear some of his best work on thursday's understanding in a car crash now you pick Ooh, Tucker yeah. rule i've got on my list Tucker rule do i have to pick someone different now because i do have a backup no no yeah. i don't mind this you know we, we had this happen a lot last week where we 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 played you know a segment and we had very similar what was it I can't it, remember we, did we did the bring me the horizon awesome. one with the guest vocalist oh, and we, we yeah, liked all vocalist. the same things really interesting <laughs> stuff there <laughs> i'm really 
really, really hoping that that's the only one here because this is literally us listening to every band possible from this scene and picking who our favourite person, or not even favourite, but just who you think could make an ultimate kind of all-star lineup. Yeah. And for us to pick this, both the same drummer is... That's weird. That, did you have anyone else potentially on the list? My backup was Dan Trapp from Senses Fail. He's a really, really good drummer. And so, but then I just thought, like, who who would I want to be in it? It was like, so Dan Trapp was, I think, the better drummer, but Tucker Rule is kind of the complete package. Like, he has the, the flat tom set up, the best posture. He's done a bit with My Chemical Romance and other bands. He, he seems like the kind of dude you'd want in the band. So we've both got Tucker Rule. He's doing doing two jobs. We both do. All right, well, I'll throw it to you now. We'll lock in our, our bass player for you, who is the bass player of your four-piece band. I am taking Chris Sorensen from Sayerson. He is responsible for their kind of keyboard programming. He does a lot of backing vocals. He can scream and sing. And um, I mean, Sayerson aren't, I think, reputable for their bass lines, but I think what he brings again as a complete package, he's going to be my bass player. And I would recommend people, if you want to see his best work, watch the Come Close DVD that's on YouTube by Sayerson. I think that represents what he brings to that band as a backing vocalist. Uh, keyboardist and bass player. How about you? Who's your bass player? Well, I'm glad we've we've finally uh, agreed differently here. So I was a bit worried because my guy is also a Chris, uh, but it is Chris Steele from Alexis on Fire. Chris. Who, yeah, he, I think is probably the most watchable bass player in, in the scene. This guy's eyes bulge out of his head for the entire time that Alexis on Fire are on stage. He's super cool to watch. He's got cool bass lines. Um, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't. He's not my backing vocalist. I'm not locking him in with a microphone. He doesn't need one. Um, but yeah, one of my favorite bands from the genre. I had to find someone to fit into my screamo band, and Chris Steele will take the bass mantle. Excellent choice. He is just an animal that is just completely in the moment, and it gets a bit weird and gross and intense sometimes. Yeah, like, he's weird. Just be like drooling, <laughs> like at the front of the stage, like stuff, yeah. staring at someone in the crowd, just drooling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is uh, mesmerizing and mesmerized. So that's an excellent yeah, yeah. choice. I really like that. That's good. He he was kind of in in my mind, but um, ultimately I wanted that complete package to do a bit of bit of MIDI programming. <laughs> bit, of, bit of programming, bit of BVs. I like it. All right, so then who is your guitarist? Okay, this was the one I found the hardest to pick. So I, I think uh, potentially for me being such a big Alexis on Fire fan, uh, an easier choice was Dallas Green. But for me, a screamo band is a little, I'm going to use the word shitter. Screamo <laughs> bands are a little bit shit. And I think I think Dallas Green's a bit too good He's to too be good for it, in, yeah. a, in, a, in just a more of an emo-y screamo band. So... <laughs> I, I am Denard. I went then to Wade. I went through the fucking whole Alexis line. I was like, maybe Wade. Nah, left Wade out as well. Ultimately, I settled on, settled on a very obscure thing. And he definitely doesn't tick the box of being shit. Uh, but it's actually Claudio Sanchez from Coheed and Cambria. If I can only have one guitarist in a band, remember this is a four-piece band with only one guitarist, I want to see Claudio up there with his double-axe guitar, shredding, doing rhythm, and the dude can sing like a maniac, so uh, put him on BVs and guitar for me. My my weirder choice for the band, but I'm locking in Claudio. I really love that you did that because that is a front man that you've put as a as a you know a B man, and I I think that was really smart because I didn't go down that route. We'll talk about Claudio Sanchez again in another episode. I don't think we'll do a Coheed one because I don't think they stuck with us, or certainly didn't stick with me the way a lot of the others did. 
but he is a completely underrated part of the like high singing arms race like he is anthony green's inspiration and so many other high singers inspiration and doesn't necessarily get the credit for it so you just nailed that option yeah he's amazing and unlike a lot of those other like high singers he's still good he 20 years oh he's he's amazing at it and i think it's because he's like just technically i don't know if he got training or not but he sings the most confidently in that range whereas the other guys i feel are pushing themselves to get there like claudio does it just with ease and effort he's yeah he, he he's amazing and yeah definitely deserves to be a front man but for this band we're just going to put him off to the side a bit have him shred or a bit more and just offer some bvs damn that's a good choice how, how about you Who, who's your guitarist i'm very keen to hear this i've gone with quinn allman from the use which is i wouldn't have chosen prior to this week but watching the live videos listening to kind of some interviews with them listening to some podcasts understanding their story better he's a really integral part of that band um and i think they they like i said before they really lost a lot of soul when they got rid of him but his riffs his standalone guitarist again he can stand on his own he does the backing vocalists you know i've already got chris from sayerson doing some it's gonna be some great gang vocals in my band so i'm uh i'm, I'm taking quinn i love it he, as i said my first man crush and an amazing musician for that genre so i'm, I'm liking these two bands where we're putting together man all right cherry on top who are you getting to front your band This one was probably the one that actually came to me straight away and couldn't find anyone else that I could knock him off. So, as I said, Screamo for me, just a little bit ratty, a little bit gross, a little bit, you know, not amazing. So I haven't gone with a super standout amazing front person, but I wanted someone that sings cleans predominantly, but I reckon has it in them to to scream as well. And I've taken him off the kit and I'll put Aaron Gillespie as my lead screamo frontman. You have been cheeky today. You like <laughs> little cheeky. You have been. Ah, <laughs> oh, this is this is good. See, I kind of I excluded Alexis on fire because I'm like you know heaps of screaming, but no, it's two different guys. I kind of uh, didn't think about under oath as well because I'm like oh there's as much screaming if not more. You've nailed this, man. You've uh, mm. you've really done well here. <laughs> so yeah, Aaron Gillespie's my my front man. We get good tastes of his clean ability on Under Oath songs, and if you jump on YouTube, uh, he's done a few acoustic sets on his own. I think he even sat under a little. I can't remember the exact name of it. He had a little solo project name going there for a bit too. Um, so the almost. Yeah, yeah, he had the almost going. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Ego and Whitey and their favorite record, Southern Weather. <laughs> Southern Weather. But uh, yeah, so and he's just got that kind of radier look, the long hair, um, you know, can get could get that all sweaty and, and be that front guy. And yeah, that that's my screamo front man. That's my full band. Wow, that's what do impressive. You got? What do you got for me? Um, I am taking an all time legend in, uh, I think, while you wouldn't probably call this band screamo or emo, he is a founding father, if you will. And the cherry on top, the lead singer of my band is Daryl Palumbo from Glassjaw. He oh, is yes, yes. one of my all-time favorites. I think a really underrated influence for a lot of singers. So let's hear your four as a one final piece. I'll give my final four and the listeners can let us know which one they'd rather listen to. So my four are lead singer Aaron Gillespie from Under Oath. Uh, guitarist and backing vocals is Claudio Sanchez from Coheed and Cambria. Bass, I've got Chris Steele from Alexis on Fire and on drums, Tucker Rule from Thursday. That's a damn good band, man. So I've got Daryl Palumbo from Glassjaw on vocals, Quinn Allman from The Used on guitar, 
Chris Sorensen from Sayerson on bass and Tucker Rule from Thursday on drums. So that was a blast, man. I look forward to building a band with you again one day. Yeah, I thought I thought I would uh, I just hit up one mate during the week and let him know we were doing this segment. And I just wanted to see, you know, it's a good friend of ours from from the Bendigo music scene days. It's our good mate K Baz. Right on. And uh, I was interested to put this to him and just see what he sent back. I didn't. I don't think I gave him fully the rules about you know, cleans and screams and whatever, just said like a screamo band. I'll just quickly run through his because I find, uh, luckily for us, there's no crossover, but but some similar, uh, you know, bands and that we've mentioned. So he went lead singer Spencer Chamberlain from Under Oath. He went Dallas Green from Alexis on Fire, who I think is worthy to be in just about any any band as a guitarist and backing vocalist. He he continued the, the used uh, thread with uh, Jeff Howard from the used on bass. And he put Daniel Davison from Norma Jean, Under Oath, Every Time I Die, Fame on uh, on drums. So a few crossover bands, but no crossover members. I reckon I'd steal at least a couple of those when we're going to do like some, maybe like a more metal themed one. That's a yeah. That's I think a like a hardcore band. band there's yeah. there's a couple of ones in there that'll be very hard not to include in in more of a hardcore band. But uh, and another great four piece lineup. <laughs> yeah, you can justify anything. Like Spencer Chamberlain did a full Under Oath record as the clean and dirty vocalist. So like he. Yeah can be classified as a clean singer if you want so that's a damn good band k-baz well done yeah 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 i like it awesome well that's it for build a band hopefully we uh get that segment again that was a blast <laughs> yeah even even if just for the intro alone, <laughs> we, will, uh, we will do that a segment again <laughs> build a band yeah can we build it build a band yeah yes we can all right, we'll uh, wrap it up there with a bit of listener mail. We always appreciate people hitting us up, whether it's via email, via Instagram or whatever, but it's really nice that people take the time to listen to this show. We started this as two really great friends that go way back who are stuck in lockdown in Melbourne, needing a hobby, needing something to do. So it's really nice that people care enough to listen. So thank you. Um, big shout out to Alex who sent us in a message whilst listening to Panic at the Disco. He said... I'm listening to your Panic at the Disco podcast to get me through the evening. I need to quickly bring up how spot on the fuck the milk analogy is. And then a bunch of <laughs> laughing faces. So uh, <laughs> listeners might remember from the Panic at the Disco episode, there was a great Shinfo with Greblo about an analogy. <laughs> about spiders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about Panic at the Disco and Fallout Boy and spiders. It was a great culinary uh, analogy as, as he so often does. So head back to the Panic episode to uh, hear some genius from Greblo. So thanks for that message, Alex. That was really sweet of you. Uh, Andy, a good friend, former housemate and your brother, he hit yep. us up and said, the Thursday episode was a touchdown. Mark oh, Holden. Mark there. Holden. Yeah, Mark <laughs> Holden reference. Dude, do you know Mark Holden sold touchdown to David Hasselhoff for a million dollars? Like the ability. As, as like a catchphrase. Yeah, as the like ability a to say touchdown because Mark Holden was from Australian Idol and Hasselhoff was on American Idol. A million bucks to say a word that is already from an American sport that doesn't make sense in Australia. Oh my. That's, that is. Uh, business geniusness from geniusness is the word I'm going with. <laughs> geniusness from Mark Holden. <laughs> yeah, Mark Holden's done two things. He wrote "Absolutely Everybody" by Vanessa Ramirosi, and he sold the word "touchdown" for a million dollars. <laughs> Living in a sweet house off those two uh, 
two callbacks. So that's pretty amazing. What a legacy. <laughs> Andy then went what on, a legacy. <laughs> Andy then went on to say that he really enjoyed hearing the link between Thursday and My Chemical Romance and Shinfo is always good. So there's another little shout out for our good friend Greblo and his uh, delightful insights. And then finally, this was a really cool one. Uh, I put up a post on Instagram just about some of the shows we've been to um, with the exception of The Used. We've seen every band that we've spoken about and you've seen the use, so it still continues to streak. So I put up some of the ticket stubs and Boys Night Out actually responded to that post saying that that show at the corner was one of their all-time favorites. And I thought that was really cool. You know, the, the fourth wall is broken down. Jeff Rickley from Thursday has liked some of our comments. Boys Night Out <laughs> have written back to us. So I think that's really cool. It's nice that this little lockdown hobby has got us uh, connected to some of our heroes. Super nice gesture and um, not overly surprising that the two bands that have shown some interest or, or reached out of Thursday and Boys Night Out, who I think we both would agree are two of, the, two of the nicer bands in the scene with very little controversy surrounding them. And yeah, that's just a really cool little thing to uh that they wanted to you know reach out and i don't know if they've listened to the uh the episodes i would say highly <laughs> unlikely but don't blame uh, them. <laughs> i'm gonna tell everyone at work tomorrow that these bands are listening to my pod so that's it for the violence and sunshine podcast uh this week as always you can hit us up on instagram at violence and sunshine if you listen to the podcast on apple podcast feel free to leave us a five star rating if you're enjoying it and as always spread the word tell a friend um, we're always appreciative of all our new listeners. Yeah, and whatever podcast uh, platform you're on, if there's the opportunity to subscribe or follow the show, that also helps us out as well. So thank you so much for listening. I'm Paul. And I'm Nick. Join us next week when we'll be exploring Jimmy Eat World. Take care and don't forget, knowing nothing is better than knowing fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the smallest line we've ever yeah, had. Yeah, that is literally it. <laughs> Join us next. Join. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I'm Paul, and I'm Nick. Join us next week when we'll be exploring Jimmy Eat World. Take care, and don't forget, knowing nothing is better than knowing. What the fuck is? Ah, oh, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> Grip. Done. That's it. <laughs> 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 <laughs>